Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. In the year 1066 occurred the other memorable date in English history, viz. William the Conqueror, 1066. This is also called the Battle of Hastings. When William the Conqueror landed, he lay down on the beach and swallowed two mouthfuls of sand. This was his first conquering action and was in the south. Later, he ravaged the north as well. The Norman conquest was a good thing, as from this time onwards, England stopped being conquered and thus was able to become top nation. So says W.C. Seller and R.G. Yateman's classic 1066 and all that. And who am I to disagree? Welcome to The Rest is History with me, Dominic Sambrook, romantic, freedom-loving heir of the Anglo-Saxons, and grey, grim Tom Holland and Norman to his fingertips. <laughs> do you, well, thanks, Dominic, for that introduction. You, do you know, I have actually played William the Conqueror on national TV. Uh, of course you have. So, yes, so I, I am a fact. sleek, evil Norman to my clean-shaven chops. So when people mistake you for actor Tom Holland, I mean, you are actor Yes, Tom I Holland, am an actor. Right? I yes. mean, he's the, he's the impersonator. Well, I think that anyone um, who saw my performance as William of Normandy would, would accept that it was a, so, a, a magnificent yeah. thespian performance. Yes, his casting by Marvel was just a colossal <laughs> case of mistaken identity, right? I mean, yeah, pretty much. William the Conqueror. Right? Pretty much. He's um, taken the time to so get anyway, onto Tom. the Spider-Man jokes, but we finally, yes. well, after 45 after episodes, we've yeah. got onto them. So, so well done for, on your restraint. Herculean self-restraint on my yeah, part. Yeah, it, it's exactly. been heroic. So, Tom, when I was at school, like you, like probably a lot of our listeners, I learned that there was one date that you had to know in English history. It's the defining date in all English history, 1066. Now, do you think that it deserves its place, first of all? Well, we, we have a question on that, don't we, from Richard Duval, who asks, is 1066 a genuine pivot point in English history? Um, and I think... So give us a sense of I, what happened, I suppose. Okay, then, so before yeah. we come to that, before we come to that, essentially, I think it is because it's, um, it's a kind of great scorch mark across the line of medieval English history. And on the one side, you have the period that we call maybe controversially the Anglo-Saxon period. And then we have the period from which we start dating our kings and queens. So there were lots of, you know, there were at least two Edwards who ruled as king of England before the Norman conquest. But we start counting Edwards from the 13th century. Um, And that's just a kind of... uh, a single indicator of the way in which essentially the Norman conquest serves to completely reorient everything. And I think it's 1066 matters and, and is indeed decisive because over the course of the millennium since people have seen it as such. And so have kind of, yeah. you know, constructed entire mythologies around it. The idea very popular in the 17th century of the Norman yoke, um, the idea that England has never been invaded since, which of course isn't true, but it, it establishes an idea of England as freedom-loving that has incredible yeah. influence through the 19th and 20th century. So I think it matters for those reasons. Um, but it's also, I, I, I think it matters in the context of the um, 11th century, because essentially what the Normans represent is this kind of revolutionary movement which is escalating on the continent at the same time as as uh, the Norman invasion. Um, and it's both a military revolution and a religious revolution. 
And the Norman Conquest is very much a part of that story. So we might get onto that later on. Um, I would never have believed you would have found a way to fit religion but, and uh, but, religious revolutions yeah, but into the story of 1066. But, but this Fantastic is, work, Tom. This is the 11th century. It is. The 11th century yeah, is religious. the... Is the yeah. It's not just very religious. This is the great <laughs> seismic... You know, this is the moment of revolution, the the, the, the papal revolution that transforms the medieval no, world. There is no century that you don't say that of, though. No, <laughs> the 11th century, I've always said, is is the revolutionary century. And I think it right. makes sense to put, see 1066 in that kind of broader perspective. Let me try and put you back on your, on your leash. Um, Tell us what happened in 1066 in about 10 sentences. Okay, so I'll try. Yeah. Sweep if that's, if that's doable. Uh, there's a reason why um, students, when they go to secondary school, study it in year seven, because it's a very inherently dramatic story. And basically, it's a kind of three-way Game of Thrones. You've got um, Harold Godwinson, son of ve- an overmighty earl. Uh, you have Harold Hardrada, Harold the Hard Ruler, the King of Norway. And you have William, the Duke of Normandy, um, the most kind of terrifyingly able man uh, in France, all of whom essentially have their eyes on the crown of England. And the crown of England becomes available on the 5th of January, 1066, when the previous king, Edward the Confessor, dies childless. And so there is this massive scramble. Um, Harold has himself, Harold Godwinson has himself crowned very rapidly in the newly built um, abbey at Westminster. Um, This provokes William to fury because William thinks that both Edward the Confessor and Harold are committed to him succeeding to the throne. Meanwhile, Harold Godwinson's brother Tostig has had a massive bust up, um, has left England in a half, has gone off to Norway where he's talked to Harold Hardrada, a terrifying Viking of the old school persuaded him that uh, he could come over and grab the throne so over the course of 1066 you have these three men all competing for the throne um it's in the shadow of halley's comet a sure portent of doom and disaster um harold godwinson is stationed on the south coast of england waiting for the normans to invade contrary winds stop william from crossing the channel while he's down there he's brought the news that um harold Hardrada and Tostig have invaded, have sailed up the Humber, have defeated um, uh, the Earls of Northumbria and Mercia, have seized York. Harold Godwinson marches at furious speed, takes Tostig and Harold Hardrada by surprise, defeats them at the Battle of Stamford Bridge. He's just breathing a deep sigh of relief when he's informed that the Normans have landed on the south coast. <laughs> so he hares back down there, meets them at um, a, a, a hill... Uh, some seven miles north of Hastings. Um, A battle is fought all day. Harold ends up dead. William um, ends up, uh, waits for the Anglo-Saxon nobility to um, accept him. They don't. So he starts to ravage the south. Uh, This is sufficiently effective that um, on Christmas Day, 1066, he is able to have taken possession of London. And on that day, he is crowned in Westminster Abbey as King of England. So it's an incredibly dramatic story. Um, and I'm sure, again, part of the reason why it has this seismic role in English history is simply that it's so dramatic and in, in lots of yeah, ways it's unusual. It's a great story. Well done, Tom. That was a bravura performance. Um, and it is a kind of Game of Thrones, isn't it? But what's interesting to me about it, just thinking about it, 
before we're recording, is that the sort of the in the popular imagination, there's this sort of period of bucolic Anglo-Saxon peace, and then these bastards arrive from Normandy and burn everything and smash everything up, and the, the Norman conquest is this great traumatic rupture. But the interesting thing is that England, I mean, England is very rich. England is very, you know, it has a very sort of potent state, so it's very good at raising taxes, and it has the sort of shires and all the rest of it. But England is has kind of been up for grabs for a while. So England has been invaded by the Danes, it's been run by Canute, it's been part of the North Sea Empire, and the Normans, the Norman influence has been getting stronger in England for decades, hasn't it, before the Norman Conquest? So Edward the Confessor is half Norman, he's got Norman friends, he's, he's given lands to some Normans. In a way... Yeah, and Harold Godwinson is half, is, is half Scandinavian. So, exactly. So, isn't this basically... England is going to be taken over by one of these two sort of powers, either Norway or Normandy, both but Viking powers, basically. And it's inevitable. Do you not think? Do you think there's basically... It's going to be dragged into the orbit, either of Scandinavia or of Normandy and France. And the only question is which. I think it was always going to be that of of France. I think it was always going to be because of this the, the the scale of this ongoing kind of revolutionary ferment in France. But you're right okay. that it is also um I mean essentially in, England is is too rich and too successful. I mean it sounds an, an odd thing to say, but the the unitary kingdom of England that gets founded in in the 10th century is incredibly precocious by the standards of the rest of Europe where where this kind of centralized nation state doesn't really exist. And you mustn't overemphasize the centralization. I mean you know, the north is 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 very roughly controlled, but it is there that there are recognized boundaries. There's a single faith, there's there's a, almost a kind of single language. I mean the dialects are kind of pretty much mutually intelligible. There's a single religion, there's a single king. And that there are these kind of incredible abilities to raise taxes. So it's it's by the standards of of other lands very very wealthy but that's a problem <laughs> because you're surrounded by robbers so it's kind of like walking through um you know a a, a, a place where there are lots of muggings with um a, a wearing a kind of you know wearing diamonds or something i mean it's kind of asking yeah. for trouble um and the vikings you know, th this is incredibly appealing to them, of course. So they come over and it's in the reign of Ethelred the Unready. Canute establishes his reign. Yeah, absolutely. Um, essentially, that Harold Ardrada in that sense is kind of old school because what he's doing, yeah. uh, you know, Vikings have been doing pretty much since the, 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 the reign on Linda, the, the raid on Lindisfarne um, is basically kind of come in and grab stuff. Um, William, I think, is is different because he he although Harold Harold Hardrada is Christian and indeed is is the half brother of the man who will become um Norway's patron saint Saint Olaf he's he's Christian in the sense that everyone has to be Christian so he doesn't believe point. it I, he's I, not I don't a, think he's not a turning the other cheek man he's very much not a turning <laughs> the other cheek man for, for for William it's it's different because William really passionately believes that god wants him to have the throne and that edward the confessor i think and i think he's right to do this i think edward the confessor had promised him the throne harold godwinson in a in a famous episode that appears on the bayo tapestry um a, a year or so before 1066 has been shipwrecked um and essentially rescued by william from captivity uh and yeah. 
he has sworn an oath um, on the bones of saints that he will back William's um, right to the throne. And William, or is that a story just told by propagandists? Uh, I don't Tom? think how, so. How true is that? I think it's. You think I, it's real? Yeah, I think it is because I don't think Harold would have got away otherwise. I mean, the the debate is over why Harold has gone there. So the English sources say that it's to to ransom some captives, that, some hostages that William has, and the the Normans say that he's been sent there by Edward the Confessor. I think the English sources there are probably truer, but I think it's pretty clear that Harold did do it, and the reason that Harold does this is because. He doesn't take it seriously. Um, so there's a there's a fabulous uh, description of him in one of the uh, in in the life of uh, Edward the Confessor, written decades so after 1066, where it refers to his his watchful mockery that he takes from ambush to ambush. And I think there's the sense that he feels it doesn't really matter. And I think more than that, that his he's in Normandy, he's able to scope out William, and 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 yeah. exactly calculate what he is up against. Um, but the problem for Harold is that William is signed up to the idea that um, essentially if he is going to England, he will be doing so as the agent of God. And as proof of So he's that, got a papal, papal banner? Or he something, has a papal has banner, which is, which is very shocking because it's, it's none of the business of the papacy to intervene in this kind of thing. This is a, this is a period where um, the, the reach of the papacy is nothing like what it becomes even within a decade or so, because this is the period where reformers in Rome are, are starting to use the papacy as a way to bring the whole of Christendom to heel, as they see it, to subject right. it to a process of reformatio. And England is, is a massive prize. England is a kind of ancient Christian country, but the Archbishop of Canterbury, a guy called Stigand, is absolutely representative of everything that the reformers in Rome dislike. He, you know, he's corrupt. He holds multiple benefices. He does not take his faith seriously at all. And so the chance to bring England to heel is hugely, hugely tempting. And the guy um, behind the um, the Pope who who essentially persuades the Pope, Alexander II, to give a, a banner with a papal blessing to William is a guy called Hildebrand, who in due course, will become Pope Gregory VII. And Gregory VII is the great revolutionary pope of the 11th century. And he's the guy who, at Canossa Castle in, in the north of the Apennines, will get Henry IV, the emperor himself, to kneel in the snow and humble himself. And mm -hmm. essentially, the humbling of Harold is a part of this. And People who are opposed to what Gregory VII are doing, opposed to what the reformers are doing, opposed to this policy of essentially kind of shaking Christendom up, cleansing it, purifying it, making it um, more truly Christian. They compare Gregory VII Hildebrand's approach to Henry IV uh, and they cast it as kind of rebellion, as, as upstart behaviour, as revolutionary behaviour. And they explicitly compare it to um, what William had done to Harold. You know, the the, the, mm, the murder and dismemberment of a Christian king. Yeah. So I think that that, yeah. that that is a massive, massive part of the context for it. And that's why when, after the Battle of Hastings, William builds a great abbey on the site where Harold fell. And the high, the high altar, yeah, yeah, Battle Abbey. So Battle Abbey, the, the high altar is to, supposed to stand on the spot where Harold fell. And this is a gesture of penance that... that for William is a, is a truly heartfelt one. And everyone, all the Normans who fought at, at Hastings have to do penance for the death that they inflicted. So there is a kind so of... So the Normans of, are kind of... 
they're more Christian. They're more, they're or they they wear their Christianity more heavily than Harold and his and the Godwinsons and their sort of hangers-on and henchmen. Is that fair? I think so. They are militant in their Christianity. Um, okay, it, it, and, and it, in a terrifying and a way, of, and a sort of allied question. So lots of novelists, I think of um, Julian Rathbone wrote a book on this called The Last English King. Lots of novelists have written about this. And of course, it's, it's the stuff of children's history books. And, and we always attempted to project personalities onto these characters. So we're going to come to Harold Hardrada later because there's lots of questions about him. He's this amazing character. Harold Godwinson, for lots of people, is this kind of romantic hero, you know, who falls in battle basically after a massive fixture pile-up. And William is kind of, <laughs> yes. oh, you played him. So you know yourself. So he's kind of this grim, very political, you know, very intense, supremely competent, terrifying figure. How much of that do you think is us projecting personalities, sort of Hollywood style, onto these people who are who are basically, I mean, they're basically competing warlords, right? They're they're yeah. they're, they're, they're leaders of gangs. They're 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 pretty scary people uh, who now we would think of as kind of the equivalent of, you know, Vladimir Putin and and sort of that's they're tough guys and are our. Our modern impressions of them basically romantic inventions. Do you think? But they've been mythologized right from the, right from the right from the beginning. So the image. Okay. So the story that the you know Harold Hardrada is the hero of Icelandic saga. So there's all this stuff yeah. about how he he goes off to Byzantium, how he fights dragons, how he has affairs with empresses, how he conquers the Holy Land. I mean, it's all totally obviously totally made up um and it, it it draws on the fact that harold hardrada as a young man did go to constantinople did clearly be- cut a tremendous dash with the varangian guard came back with lots of cash made himself you know with which he was able to win war bands and and, and win the, the the crown of norway i mean clearly he's 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 as my brother would say a massive lad in a, <laughs> like Neville Chamberlain yeah like Neville Chamberlain he's a terrifying I mean of course he's a terrifying guy and that's why people write epics about him Harold Godwinson likewise is I mean this is a guy who's fighting the Welsh um, and gets given the head of the Welsh prince who he's been fighting with and treats it as a as, as a trophy um, yeah now to, so to, see, the to the Normans, to the Normans is, is he's kind of listening to poetry and holding no. hands with Edith, his Edith wife, Swan neck. Yes, the beautiful. Yeah, Edith and he's Swan. loving kind of Anglo-Saxon traditions and all that. That's all balls, is it? I think. I mean, I think he's Harold. Harold Gomson is a charismatic man. He must have been to win the support. Uh, uh, essentially, he. I mean, he. You see, Harold Gomson is. Um, he's a kind of. Uh, a decent Richard III. He's a usurper <laughs> like Richard III. There is, you know, there is an atheling, a man, yeah. a, a prince who, who should become king in the form of Edgar. Edgar is the, um, the, the, the grandson of Edmund Ironside, the English king who fought Canute and then, and then died. Um, Edmund Ironside's son had been brought up in Hungary. He'd come back to England. He died almost immediately. Edgar is the son. He's only about 13 in 1066. So he's not really able to, to, to have the crown. But even so... Um, uh, he's the rightful heir. Harold Godwin's yeah, heir Harold Godwinson elbows him out of the way. I mean, but doesn't kill him or anything. So 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 he's a nice Richard right. the third. 
but but he's so he's but a I mean, charismatic man to, us- to persuade all the other noblemen to to, to sign up yeah. to that. But yeah, a usurper is only a usurper is only remembered as a usurper if they then lose, aren't they? If they're yeah. a usurper and they win, then they're just part of the canon. So no one thinks of them as also. Usurpers. And also, it's more confused because um, the, the the laws around who becomes king is you know it's it's more up for grabs. Essentially, it's an elective office, and you then get it sealed yeah. with a coronation. Um, so uh, Harold, you know, I mean, he, he's elected king. Um, so he he clearly is charismatic, and I think you you get the sense from that thing of it, of him, um, you know, the watchful mockery. I think that that's written within his lifetime, and I think that that's clearly true to the the, the style that he brings to, to to kingship. He's he's an amusing, amused kind of man. William, you know, I mean, he he's he's terrifying because he's terrifyingly able, and he's terrifying in the way that. Um, very, very competent revolutionaries are invariably terrifying. And the thing is that, that the, the revolution is not just religious, it's also military, because um, this in France, this is the age of, of two very, very significant developments, one of which is um, the realisation, particularly in Anjou, who William fights against for, for decades before he launches his attack on England, the Angevins recognize that you can use castles as tools of oppression yes so they start there's but, no word in english for castles no, is there when the no, normans come over no people don't know what they are no they've got no idea whereas all along the you know the, the loire the early chateau are going up and essentially um the uh, the angevin counts are able to use these chateaus as ways of establishing themselves as kind of power you know they come from almost nowhere to become the major power in central france and the normans pick yeah. up on this very very quickly the scope for castles and william as a as a boy you know he's he, he he becomes duke very very young so he has to put up with all the the noblemen whacking castles up all over the place and he spends his early years essentially breaking that power so he's very very alert to the use that castles play and he's able to do that because he is a norman and the normans are kind of proficient at the other great development which is the um the use of horses as a tool of oppression so you've got castles and right. horses and these are of course you know, knights, chevalier right? knights yes yeah yes and i mean essentially to, to to be in the neighborhood with the normans is like being stuck in a bottle with a hornet these are these are terrifying <laughs> in the way that the spartans were terrifying yeah. or the romans of the of the mid-republic were terrifying these are people who are completely organized for war who live and breathe it. William has been in the saddle training for war since a boy, since he was a boy. And the Anglo-Saxons, although they fight a lot, are not organised for war in that way. And they do not have castles. They have kind of wooden halls that are unprotected. So it, that is what enables the Norman conquest to work, is that they are introducing this terrifying military technology, which is transforming yeah. France and which England is very, very vulnerable to. So, Tom, we're going to have to take a break in a second and then do the questions. But before we do that, I want to ask you what you think about this. So England has become a quite a potent unitary state, the most united, the most sophisticated sort of governing apparatus really in Europe. And some people say the first European nation state, partly under threat from Viking invasions. So because of the Viking invasions, because the constant need to raise money to fight them off and to sort the defences out and stuff, English kings before 1066 have built, have created, with their thanes and whatnot, this this great state, 
that, that makes it a prize. So you can decapitate the king and you can take it over and then you'll yeah. be very rich. Hurrah, hurrah. So the question is, why haven't they created um, a technological military apparatus to go along with that? So in other words, why are they behind? If they are ahead of other European sort of states in tax raising and all that stuff, why are they behind technologically in military terms? Is it because they to do with the geography? Is it because they're only having to fight Vikings? What's the reason? It, it's it's precisely because the English state is as unitary as it is that the king, or at least the you know the earls who rule the former kingdoms of Wessex and Mercia and East Anglia and Northumbria, are have have sufficient authority that. Um, People who, who, who give them any shit can, you know, will come to a grisly end. That is not what happens in France. In France, the, the, the power of the king shrivels and shrivels and shrivels until essentially it's just focused on the Ile de Paris. Um, right. And that means that all the, the duchies and, uh, are, are essentially kind of fair game for anyone who wants to grab it. So you have a state of kind of organised anarchy across what will become the Kingdom of France. And this is a breeding right. ground for... Um, for for oppression so it's it's kind of like you know um, you know one city where you have mob rule you have the mafia uh, you know the mafia become incredibly good at extorting stuff and then they muscle into a city where there's no mafia at all and suddenly all the shopkeepers are having to you know they have no protection against it and that's that essentially is the situation that there's no need for castles or knights in England because you have the the unitary monarchy but that's precisely right. what makes it as so vulnerable. So in a weird way, competition, the sort of anarchic competition of life in France, breeds innovation and success, basically. Yeah. Britain is almost a victim of its own... Well, it's, it's, a vic- it's a victim of a different kind of success. Yeah, and, and this this kind of potent new form of... of I mean, it, it is oppression with the knights and the castles. It's not just England that, and, and in the Duke of Scotland and, and Ireland that suffers from it. It's also um, in Italy. So Norman adventurers travel there. They conquer southern Italy. They conquer um, the Muslim uh, state in in Sicily. They invade the Balkans. They, um, you know, they, they, they give the Byzantine emperor an incredibly bloody nose in the Balkans. And then they provide the cutting edge for the First Crusade. So th- these are quite simply the best warriors in Europe. Yeah. And, and England is one of their victims. England, England is, is just their most high-profile victim. I England suppose. is the high, the most, and and that's why the Norman Conquest is is so unusual. the The fact that you know a band of men can move in and take over an entire kingdom, nothing really quite like it happens apart from the Norman Great. Conquest. Perfect point to take a break, Tom, and we can go and sharpen our swords and build our castles and stuff, um, and then we'll come back and um, do the questions. See you in a minute. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time, don't we? But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Well, Dominic, you'll know that uh, my great love is cricket, and cricket is a sport that notoriously takes up a lot of time. So imagine, if I had even more time, just how brilliant I would be. And I've worked out that the best way to squeeze things into your schedule is to know what's really important to you 
so that you can make it a priority. Well, Tom, therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you'll know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. BetterHelp offers convenient, affordable online therapy that comes to you. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. So visit betterhelp.com slash rest is history today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash rest is history. Welcome back to The Rest is History. In, in podcasting terms, we've seen off the, the Norwegians at Stamford Bridge, and now we're marching desperately south to find the Normans have landed at Pevensey with a ton of questions, and we're going to get through them now. So <laughs> like the arrows falling Danny, onto us. <laughs> exactly. It's from Danny Kay. Uh, and we've sort of addressed this a bit, but he says, why, despite a relatively well-developed state, was England such an easy target for invaders? We've kind of answered that, but we haven't answered his second his follow-up, which is, what did the Normans do to change that? So why does it change? Why, doesn't, why don't more people invade England after the Normans have landed? Why, why doesn't everybody else pile in and try to take England from them, Tom? Well, because there are castles. <laughs> so, uh, you know, there are kind of Viking um, kings who, who do have a kind of little nibble at England after 1066. Right. But what can they do? I mean, you know. So the Normans are simply too fearsome. Once they've got possession, you can't dislodge them. Well, they, they rush around putting castles up everywhere. Um, right. And I think one of the reasons that, that Harold Godwinson, when he comes south from Stamford Bridge, rather than resting and waiting for more troops to come, as he probably should have done, is, is, is so desperate to march on, on, on uh, William, is that he's been in Normandy, so he sees what the Normans can do with their castles. And he knows that even a, a, a few very rough castles put up are, are almost impossible to remove. So I think he's rushing down to try and stop that from happening. Um, and of course, the moment that, um, that William's become king, you know, he, he's sending his, his, uh, his liegemen out they are putting up the castles. And once the castles have gone up, there's no one who can pull them down because the, the, the Normans have the, have the military technology that prevents anyone from, from, from competing them. And I think that's so true for the Vikings think, as well. So that raises an interesting question. If the, if the Vikings had taken England, if Harold Hardrada had taken England, do you think ultimately the Normans would have won anyway because they have so much technology? I think at some point that technology would have crossed, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting... I mean, I kind of agree. I mean, that's an interesting thing, isn't it? The argument is that this is a pivotal moment because it brings England into the Norman and then the French orbit. But I suppose uh, the ultimate point, surely, is that that England would have been claimed by that orbit at some point in the next couple yeah, of I th- years anyway. I, 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 think few, I think within the next few decades. Because I, I think that, right. the, that the lethal quality of, of the military technology that had been developed in France and the militant quality of the... Um, the, the the papal revolution meant that that England couldn't be allowed to kind of yeah. drift along as it was, and it's sort of like the same question about the English language, isn't it? I mean, the, you know, it's often said this is a pivotal moment in the evolution of English that it, it absorbs French words and 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 that sort of stuff. But I mean, I suppose you could argue that France's cultural gravitational pull meant that at some point in the next few hundred years, English 
was bound to take in lots of French words because of trade, because of cultural contacts. Yeah, I think so. There would have been court contacts and stuff like that. Okay, let's have another question. Um, I, I'll ask it again, I guess. Uh, Chet Archbold. So Chet is a friend of the show. We are, we're very used to Chet's questions. Chet says, he wants to know who was Edward's lawful heir. Can we resolve that? And, well, he's asked three questions. My gosh. Uh, <laughs> let's do the Edward's lawful let's, heir yeah. first. Um, um, Edgar Atheling, I think, was the lawful but heir. But it doesn't matter, does it? Because it, it, I mean, it's irrelevant who the lawful heir was, right? Yeah. At this time... Yeah. Ever since you know, there's been Danish invasions. The crown has been yeah. changing hands lots. I mean, it's kind of, and it's a, it's it's not the right question, I guess. And well, ex- English... except that no, except that um, there is a kind of uh, sacral quality to the line of Alfred, which Ed- Edgar belongs okay. to. So it's the House of Wessex, uh, and and, yeah. and that's that's Edgar is the House of Wessex guy, and but he could never have got it right because he was too young. But he's an I mean, Atheling, the, the, the famed... and, and everyone calls him Atheling, and Atheling means you know deserves to be king. Crown prince, almost. Yeah. Yes, but 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 with the sense that you have the right to become king. So, so why does no one speak up for him when Edward the Confessor, you know, breathes his last? Because he's thirteen. They're all frightened of Harold Gobinson. Yeah, because because he's thirteen. Because they know that um, that they don't want the, they don't want the Normans. They don't right. they don't trust Edgar to stand against the Normans. Harold is yeah. a, is a general of proven ability. Um, yeah. So they're rallying to they're, they're rallying to the guy who who will keep england english so choosing harold is not this kind of weird illegitimate they've been intimidated by godwinson kind of mobs um it's a completely reasonable yeah. legitimate choice yes it is okay good because that's what i think um <laughs> what about chet's next question he asks about class so there is this argument that people called let's say glanville are, are more likely to be rich because they're descended from the normans than people called smith who are likely to be, you know, still kind of, you know, working class, um, sort of salt of the earth Britons. Do you do you buy this? Do you think the Norman Conquest has, um, has left a class system that has endured for? I do. You know, a millennium. Yes, you do. I do. Yes, you I do. do. I do. Do you not? I mean, uh, I think statistically, I wasn't mean, there? Uh, there was some study published a couple of years ago. Yes, there Pro- was. Exactly. This, That's what I'm thinking uh, of. So I'm very happy to go along with that. I, the I'm people not, with Norman names. Yes, uh, are Montgomery. Monty was very f- yeah, proud of I, I being. I don't know. I'm a bit. I'm a bit. Uh, I'm a bit dubious about this, to be honest with you. But um, I think it's definitely. I mean, you made the point in the first half of the show that it's definitely what it's actually clearly made a difference to is our sense of class, if not the reality, then our our understanding of it. So our sense of a sort of dualism between haves and have-nots, between a ruling class and an oppressed mass. I mean, that's there. Before you know Marx or anything like that, that's there in the that's, kind of that's there in the, the Middle Ages, Ages, isn't it? It's there and it's there in yeah. the Middle Ages, um, and it's it, it's hugely influential. I mean, it's kind of growing up there by the fourteenth, fifteenth centuries, as you say, the Norman yoke, and it's massive. Or we, we've already talked about Ivanhoe and Walter Scott, and yeah. that idea of yeah. of there being a massive division between Normans and English, and I th- and that's not made up. That's real. I mean, that, I think that it is really... made up. I think it is made up. Do I you... think I think that I mean, certainly by but... the time that John loses Normandy in the yeah. in the thirteenth early thirteenth century, uh, oh, by then every, everyone is thinking of themselves as English. But for a long time, Tom, maybe a couple of hundred years, people are there is a sense of England is what one and a half million people, 
and the Norma to come over, and we're talking about tens of thousands, maybe a, maybe twenty thousand, fifteen thousand, or something. Yeah, well, they have all the land, they have all the power. I mean, they are a ruling class, right? You 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 get this with the um the the first English historians to write about you, William of Malmesbury, um, and uh, who 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 talks about um. Uh, new faces everywhere enjoying England's riches and gnawing at her vitals. Oh, <laughs> makes me sick. It makes me sick to hear this stuff. And uh, and and you've got um, Henry of Huntingdon who says that that God basically has invented the Normans to wipe out the English. So that's yeah. So that sense is is very real. But but I think it fades pretty. It's gone by the 13th century, I think. And the Normans basically now see themselves as English. Because I suppose they're fighting the French, right? So they're defining yeah. themselves against the French, do you think? Yes, they are absolutely. Yes, they are. And But but what also happens is, say, with the Peasants' Revolt, you're getting peasants there who are mythologising the Norman Conquest to explain their sufferings. What about uh, Chet's final question, which is about would England have looked more to Scandinavia than France? I mean, I think that is, that's the question that people often ask. If it had gone otherwise, would England effectively be part of Scandinavia? And would we... You know, would we be eating cinnamon buns, fantastic <laughs> mid-century Herring. furniture? You know, very. Um, we'd have we'd have very yes. generous pensions and and pay would colossal taxes. Yeah. So if, if they'd won, we would all be listening to ABBA and shopping at IKEA. Oh, yeah. we are. <laughs> yeah. So well, it didn't make yes, any difference. Um, <laughs> you see, I love this because I'm a real Scandi file, so I kind of think, oh, if only Hardrada had yes. won, it'd be great. We'd, We'd all be, be like watching miserable dramas yeah, about the detectives. Bridge. <laughs> yeah. There we are. Um, um. No, I think that, for the, as we've discussed, I think that the gravitational pull of France would have been too great. Uh, but, and we can, we can tell that because the same is true of Scandinavia. The Scandinavian kingdoms likewise start... Um, building gothic cathedrals and going on crusade and having knights and castles and things so um it's it's a cultural pull that i think was not to be resisted okay here's one for you on on the subject of norway this is from uh, stefan jensen since i'm norwegian i of course have to ask how close to a great and awesome norwegian-led north sea empire was king harold really before he lost at hastings could he have made it e.g the timing had differed by a few weeks or was it a doom project from the beginning so, well, that could Harold Hardrada have won? Because the, the the example of Canute suggests that it wasn't necessarily doomed from the beginning, because Canute had a North Sea Empire. But I suppose the argument against it is that a North Sea Empire was was liable to fragmentation. So, Canute's empire breaks up, as we know, um, and maybe even if Hardrada had won, at, you know, if he'd won at Stamford Bridge, if he'd then beaten William, which is you, you, according to you unlikely because of the technological gap. Um, would England have remained as part of a North Sea empire, or would that empire have inherently fragmented um, because it because of its sort of yeah? I think it would have fragmented. Scattered. Yeah, I mean, it's also Harold Hardrada was an long, old guy. He's fifty, isn't he? He's about yeah. fifty when he yeah. So, so it's his last be dead in five ten years, yeah. probably. And one of the things you get throughout this period, right, is a, a series of succession crises. So. That's why the crown is swapping so much, and it's such a confusing story in the sort of hundred years before ten sixty six. So there'd been another succession crisis. Well, I guess of how Drada died, and what would have happened then? Tostig, I guess. 
Yeah, well, there would have been some other Earl would have challenged him, I, and it would have been somebody would have pitched up from Norway, I mean, and it would have all been a bit of a mess. Tostig, Tostig, and then the Normans would have come over at some point, wouldn't they? And then you know the well, Normans would have had yeah. another go. I mean, but but clearly Tostig is thinking, "I'm going to get the throne when Harold when Harold yeah. dies." Always had a soft spot for Tostig. Um, he, our cat, Did you have a cat, our cat is, yes, our cat is named after him. So we had we had um, yeah. we had Harold, uh, Tostig, and Edith. Um, Harold, Harold, still... Harold wandered off, uh, but we still got Tostig oh, and no. Edith. So Harold three... off to swear an oath to some other. <laughs> yes, he some did. He did. He wandered off. South and... London homeowner. Yeah, he did. He's with some other home. Oh, that's sad, Tom. Watchful mockery. What a, what a traumatic moment yeah, it, is. Uh, it is. But we still have Tostig. Um, okay, here's so another Harold, one. Harold, we've got another. Yeah, here's an- yeah another one for you. Um, um, Patrick eight five one was Williams' okay. real triumph. Ending the Viking way of war in favour of cavalry. If so, were the English exiles? So, why? Why were the English exiles so successful in the Mediterranean after they fled? E.g., the English guard in Byzantium. Yeah. So the English guard in Byzantium. You'll know more about this than me, Tom. So they're basically they're, the Varangian guard uh, have been there for a while. They're the emperor's kind of bodyguard, and they're recruited from Norsemen. They've often come down from sort of Kiev and Rus and all that sort of stuff. The sort of trade routes that the Norse have established going down into what's now Ukraine. Um, but the Varangian Guard pick up a lot of Anglo-Saxon exiles, don't they? Am I yeah. right? After yeah, 1066, right. yeah. um, and they're sort of feared because of their strange moustaches and, <laughs> and their <laughs> sort yes. of hard-drinking ways. They're basically yes. football hooligans who've gone to Turkey, modern-day, you know, what's now Turkey, and sort of behaving badly and and being well, the fearsome. Varangian, and the Varangian Guard go with um, the Byzantines to confront the Normans in the Balkans after 1066, and end up in a barn and the normans burn them to death so it, all right so it's they're a, not as successful as all that they're not unfortunately but having said that um i think the um you know the house carls the the, the personal guard around the, the english king are simply the best infantry in europe so what you have at hastings this is they've got the shield wall tactics yeah. haven't they and all that stuff this this is um you know this is uh kind of european cup that they're they're going for it's the best cavalry against <laughs> the best infantry and one wow. of the things that's that's really unusual about hastings is that it it goes on all day i mean that's a really unusual for an ancient battle or a medieval battle they're usually over in about an hour Imagine ex- i mean and it goes one thing lasts all day how exhausting yeah they must have been absolutely i mean barely able to lift their weapons at the end you would assume a lot of them presumably just die because they're too tired to fight anymore yeah I, th- I think so. And also what's impressive is that um, both the Normans and the English at one point look as if they're going to break. So there's the rumour that, Nor- that William's been killed and that they also- right. and yeah. then William takes his, his helmet off and rallies them. And then um, the uh, Anglo-Saxons have run down the hill. Um, lots of them get killed, but they still don't break. And even when but the, Tom, even when the shield that? wall breaks, they remain on the top. And that's, that's essentially what, that's, that's why the battle is so decisive is that Harold doesn't flee. He stays where he is. But Tom, the accounts of the battle, um, I mean, how much is that actually what happened and how much of that is just sort of standard battle narrative, the formulae? I mean, people are always almost being killed in battles and lifting their helmets and saying, I'm still alive and and, and sort of staging feints and being chased and then coming back. And isn't that well, the just sources, what the sources, say about The sources battles? for a medieval, relative to a medieval battle are, are pretty good for Hastings. You okay. know, they're written by people who were there. Or who witnessed it, or who talked to eyewitnesses, and you've got the bear tapestry. So, 
obviously there, so are, we do there, know. there are details that yeah. we don't know uh it's mythologized people can't know for sure but i think the basic outline um and the thing about the the um but the normans and then the english kind of breaking is repeated in different ways in near contemporary sources so it's they are not copying one another they're clearly drawing on a, a, a sense that, that this had actually happened so i'm 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 happy with that i think it happened but to just go back to the question for a second about the Varangian Guard and the English Guard in Byzantium, I think that's one of the most romantic stories in all history, actually. I love the Varangian Guard sort of stuff. So you've probably seen, I can't remember if we've talked about this in a previous podcast, the the um, graffiti yeah. in Hagia Sophia. Yeah. In, yeah um, by Halfdan, I think. Isn't he called Halfdan? Um, he, he's a sentry or something and he scribbles on a pillar or or I can't remember how he does it. He's etched it into the wall or something. We really need to do of, a podcast on the Vikings in, in the East. It'd be great. great well, it? we talked in a previous um, episode about Rosemary Sutcliffe's book, Blood Feud, which is about yes. an English boy who becomes a Varangian guard. And he becomes a Viking and he goes down the, the river and he goes to Kiev and then he ends up working for the emperor. It's great stuff. We should do a podcast just about that book. Actually. <laughs> anyway, let's do another um, question. Okay, Rob Scott. Do you want to pick one? Yeah, Rob Scott. Um is there any yes. truth in the rumour that King Harold was shot in the balls rather than the eyeball? And that's that's quite absurd, isn't it? Because we we're about to do one on eunuchs. So, <laughs> yes, yeah, and Thursday, our next our, our next podcast. So, Dominic, what's your take on the was King Harold shot in the eye mystery? You project onto this what you want, really, but I think it's endured for so long. Uh, partly because of that that image in the tapestry. So the, the as far as I can understand, some scholars now think that the image in the tapestry so, shows two stages of his death. So he's shot in the eye, then he falls, then he's yeah, that's one. butchered. Yeah. Or um, that he's holding a spear. Uh, that the guy with the yes, arrow is holding a spear. So. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think the Harold shot in it's such a great story, and it's endured <laughs> yeah. because it's... I mean, it's a better story, isn't it, than he's just butchered on the ground the shot in the eye and because the shot in the eye introduces the element of contingency so it makes it easier to see him as a romantic hero if if only he the arrow hadn't hit him right in the uh, eye but but maybe he could have prevailed and but the other way of seeing like that, about it is that it? it's not contingency yeah. that it's the judgment of god well i knew this was coming because yeah. because actually the the earliest extant source says that um and this is where the the the, the testicles thing comes in as it were is that that William sees Harold on the battlefield and William gathers some men around him and they go and attack Harold and they butcher him and they dismember him and they hack off his testicles and they behead him. Right, nice, nice. And I think that that what's interesting about that is that that is not a tradition that gets picked up. Um, And I think one of the reasons it doesn't get picked up is that it makes William look bad. Whereas... William has cast Hastings as being, you know, we're putting this before God. God will judge. And if the battle is finished, you know, and the story that Harold gets shot in the eyes are, are quite early. Um, if that happens, then uh, obviously it proves that God is on, on William's side. So I, I think that question, I mean, it's a really interesting one, gets caught up in the snarl of Norman propaganda and justification. They might have wanted to think that. And on the, on the topic of, of romance and Harold... One from Pink Hayes. Um, Is King Harold really buried at Waltham Abbey? I've been to both Battle and at Waltham Abbey and have seen what they assume is his grave. But is it him? So the story of what we happens know, to Harold is just, terribly we romantic. Just don't know. Isn't, isn't there a claim that he's also at Bosom? Yeah, that's right. Um, yes. And there has been an argument about 
permission was refused, I think, to dig up a grave in Bosom um, to do DNA testing or something. I mean, what do you think, Tom? Do you have a do you have a, a definitive know. answer? I, mean, I don't know. How, how can you? I don't know. <laughs> but the uh, the story. Well, so, so the, again, the earliest thing is that is that Harold is that William refuses to give the body of Harold to um, to Harold's mother. That's and they right. Make a and give joke. it to an, another Norman. Yeah, I think they, they make a, they make a joke that um, he, Harold's body should be put um, on the foreshore, looking out to sea. And that that's kind of interesting because Bosom is on the sea; it's on the Sussex coast. So yeah. maybe that's oh. um But the, there are a lot of medieval stories that he he survives the battle and becomes a hermit. I like that. So I like that one. So he'll like maybe he'll come in. We've been told by the producer that we can only do one more question. So I think we should do two more questions. Just to sort of, <laughs> assert, you know, just to, just assert to assert some power. pathetic, some pathetic sort of vestige of power over our own podcast. So I think we should do Connor Moon's question because it's very crucial. If you can be very crucial. Um, how, if all, if at all, does, says Connor Moon, did life change for the submerged nine-tenths of the population when Norman rule was established? You know, was it life as usual for the peasants or were there big changes? And I guess that's a really huge question, isn't it? So for you're living in a village somewhere in Lincolnshire or, or, or Herefordshire. How much does this actually matter to you? Is the, the replacement of one elite by another... You know, does it make a big difference in your in your life, Tom? Well, I'll tell you who it does make a big difference for is the slaves, because about a tenth of the population in Anglo-Saxon England are enslaved. And the Norman conquest effectively ends that. Um, and there right. is evidence that William is ideologically opposed to slavery, that he regards it as being mm. contrary to God's will. So you could cast um, the Norman invasion as an anti-slavery movement as well, which is something <laughs> well, you could. extra you could. To, to throw into the mix. Okay, and so yeah. on that topic of what gets lost with the Norman conquest, here is one from Tim Vasby Burney, friend of the show. Um, when you think of 1066, various aspects of Anglo-Saxon culture came to an end. So we've talked about slavery. That's one aspect that comes to an end. Yeah. Which of these are we most saddened by? So, Dominic, you're a, a romantic on this. I am. So, you see, I, what I mourn, Tom, is something that probably is utterly made up, which is the sort of the traditional liberties of the Anglo-Saxon, <laughs> you know, the Anglo, the ordinary, the ordinary, the Middle England, you know, crushed by these Frenchified. Um, and, and I'm sure that's utterly invented. But I kind of like the romance of the of the Norman yoke. And I suppose there's... Um, ah. You know, the sources suggest that actually Norman rule wasn't a bundle of laughs. I mean, people right. sort of English sources say, you know, they they sort of wept and cried out and to God, such was the oppression. So I think there was there is obviously a sense of of, of some degree of liberty or self government or cultural integrity being lost. I guess um, the other thing that's lost, of course, is the hair. Yeah. So there's a sort of hairiness to Anglo-Saxons, isn't there? In the in the bio tapestry, don't they have yeah. moustaches and yeah. stuff? Yeah. Um, so they look like the village people or something. <laughs> um, and that's that's obviously been been lost to some extent, hasn't it? I mean, as a clean-shaven person myself, I suppose. I should Are you never tempted by a by a kind of Godwinson moustache? I think I I think I'd look ridiculous. I, I think mean, you should try more it. ridiculous than I do now. I think you think you so? Try, yeah, I think you should try it. Maybe. All right. What do you think's been? What do you, I mean, you're another Norman. Norman. Well, for man. me, I'm. I, I. I think what gets broken is the distinctive quality of the English Church, uh, and our sense of the saints, the Anglo-Saxon saints, which, um, as you'll know from, we did the Saint Cuthbert, 
uh, St. Cuthbert does get appropriated. Quite a lot of them get appropriated. But because um, essentially the Normans move in and they take over all the cathedrals, the monasteries and everything, um, that sense of a kind of organic link with the pre-conquest church and its traditions and its saints, that, that gets broken. And, and I, I, I'm sad about that. Although possibly not as sad think... about the fact that you don't have a moustache. And I really think that you <laughs> seriously think about firming your rights as a freeborn Anglo-Saxon by growing one. Tom, one last question, which has occurred to me from what you, you just said. Do you think that the, the fact that that's such a question is being asked by the Reverend Tim Vasby Burney and the sense of 2066 as a rupture and a lost sense of liberty, do you think that plays a part in English exceptionalism? England's sense of itself as distinct? I think that um, I think it's very, very. I, when we talked about this right at the beginning about it, the the role that 1066 plays in the um, secondary school curriculum, that it's right at the beginning. Um, yeah, I, I think that, that if England is exceptional, it's exceptional in the way that it enshrines as its national myth the story in which the English get defeated. I mean, yeah, it's that's not something that um, the Scots or the Americans do. Um, it it seems very very odd, and I think that that does kind of. Um, I think it's always slightly served to qualify the uh, English triumphalism, certainly, um, and perhaps I think it, it it reflects our enormous sense of self confidence. Do don't you think, Tom? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> you Possibly. have to be. You have to be a really top nation to start with the defeat. <laughs> to celebrate a defeat. Yes, maybe, exactly. maybe, maybe. Well, on that patriotic note, um, I think we probably better celebrate the end of 1066 um we have uh we have another episode coming up don't we on wednesday a live episode um assassinations so the link uh by the time this goes out may well already be up if not it will be going up imminently and yes it's on assassinations um and then on thursday we have an episode in which we go through our list of top 10 eunuchs and i think we're not giving a spoiler are we harold isn't one of them so no, he's not. We've got some very good eunuchs, though. <laughs> We've got very good eunuchs. Good eunuchs. We've got them. So um, <laughs> we will see you hopefully on Wednesday and hopefully on Thursday. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Hi, Rest is History fans. If you want more Tom Holland in your life, and frankly, why wouldn't you? I have some good news for you. I'm Emily Dean, and I'm thrilled to say that this week, Tom is a guest on my podcast, Walking the Dog, where you get to hear well-known faces at their most relaxed, because I talk to them over a leisurely outdoor stroll with my dog, Raymond. And you can join us this week for a very special two-part in-depth chat with Tom Holland. And yes, I'm afraid I did ask him this question. Tom, how often do you think about the Roman Empire? I think about it a huge amount. In fact, there are days where I barely stop thinking about it. My brain is occupied by the Romans. It's like gall. If you want to hear more of my chat with Tom, give Walking the Dog a listen this week. And while you're there, you can take your pick from episodes starring the likes of Ricky Gervais, Jack Whitehall and Jimmy Carr. What's that, Raymond? Yes, The Rest is History did do an episode all about the greatest dogs in history. No, you weren't in it. Most spoilt dog in history, maybe.